Welcome to Leap Into Your Story podcast, where you discover your inner story, break down the process, and meet others who've done it so you can leap into your own story. We interview amazing guests who provide powerful insights that inspire you to get your story told. Be sure to visit our website at leapintoyourstory.com, and while you're there, subscribe and like us via your favorite social media network. Now sit back, get ready to take some notes, and let's get started. This episode of Leap Into Your Story podcast is brought to you by Leap Into Your Story course. Visit leapintoyourstory.com where you have a guide to get your story told. I'm Victoria Anderson, and welcome to the Leap Into Your Story podcast, where you discover your inner story, work through the process, and meet others who've done it. We interview amazing guests who provide powerful insights that will inspire you to leap into your own story. So be sure to visit our website at leapintoyourstory.com. And while you're there, subscribe and like us via your favorite social media network. In this episode, we will be discussing confessions of an ancient astronauts. My guest today is Richard Smith. Richard is the CEO of the Human Origins Foundation. He is the author of a thought-provoking book series and shares his knowledge and passion for lost knowledge of our human origins and about ancient historical and extraterrestrial narratives influencing our society and culture including our modern narratives now. He's currently working on his next book. Richard is an elected member of the Arts Commission for the City of Rio Rancho and the founder of 1122 Creative. He and his wife, Linda, serve on the executive committee for the New Mexico's UFO and Paranormal Forum. He has a degree in visual communications. He's received high honors for his work with social and extraterrestrial narratives. And as the co-founder of the CEO and an educational nonprofit, he has spent the last 10 years speaking at forums, seminars, and conferences. And today he joins us. So welcome, Richard. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you. I'm honored. Very good. Well, Richard, tell before we dive into some really kind of juicy questions, because I'm so anxious to um, find out some answers about them. But can you tell us how this journey all started? I mean, is there, is there ignition point? Was it just a personal fascination? So take us on that journey. Sure. Yeah. Um... That's, a, that's an interesting one. Every time someone asks it, um, it started. Uh, technically, I would say it started when I was four or five years old. However, the reality of knowing that didn't start till the, my first awakening at the age of 21. OK, um, there was no thought of this until that came along, even though all along the way th through my childhood, uh, once once I started thinking about it, I realized there were synchronicities there that I just didn't pick up on. So at the age of 21, during the first awakening, 
um, it was uh, made known to me that um, I am involved with the whole extraterrestrial thing, extraterrestrial contact with the human race, and that it's not just individual, it was more so generational involving my mother and my grandmother too. And now I have reason to believe that it's been passed on to my nieces, the next generation, uh, my brother's children. So um, in that first awakening, um, what was uh, presented to me <clears throat> was an entity I've referred to often and talked about a lot in the books called the crone. Um, I've also referred to her as mother early on, but I've stuck with the crone. Um, it was uh, much later on, an interesting synchronicity came up about that, that someone brought to my attention. Uh, this person said to me one day, it's interesting you call her the crone because the way you describe her in detail um, is very much like what the Native Americans refer to as the crone. So I thought that was an interesting connection there. But this entity, I would describe her as uh, very much like a female praying mantis, um, that kind of an entity. And once that first time I saw her, she presented herself to me. Uh, the first thing I remember out of my mouth was, uh, I know you. How do I know you? Because it was just a shock, but it was a, something familiar. And the reason being is that all those dreams, in quotes, I say dreams, I had as a kid came flooding back in a cluster bomb of memories, just total recall. Once she was there, it was almost like that energy of her presence triggered that. And it was okay to open that part of my mind up at that point. Um, and from that, all those memories started flooding back. And then I realized, oh, this is not my first time seeing you. You've been there since I was four years old. You were this dark shadow presence in the background who never made yourself known, but I knew you were there. So there was always that mothering presence of something watching over me. And then all the pieces fell into place. And I realized, oh, this has been going on with my mother. Um, this morning, like it goes way back to my grandmother. Um, and then it became that she started explaining certain things about my history, my brother and I together, um, and that she comes from uh, a very interesting group of indiv individuals I refer to in the book as the Sisterhood, which is a group of uh, multi-genotype races, extraterrestrial races, and you'll see humans in there, but if you're on another planet, you might refer to humans as extraterrestrial. So I just use the word extraterrestrial with the understanding that there are some humans in there too. Um, however, um, it's predominantly, it's called, I call it the sister, it's predominantly female, but you'll find some um, male presences in there too. Because um, let's face it, when you're out there, the concept of gender does tend to go out the window. So um, which is an interesting topic we can get into later on. Um, however, her being uh, this very, very ancient primordial entity, her race is few and far between. They've become very ancient. They're probably in the bedrock of the universe itself, or at least the galaxy. And uh, they have... Uh, her presence, her, this crone, 
she's the one that started gathering together a long ago these different um, um, individuals from different races who wanted to become part of the sisterhood for the sole purpose of keeping an eye on uh, gifted children who are at that age, uh, you know, they're coming into, they're born into this reality and they're there to protect them so that they don't become abused or fall the other way. It's not a perfect system um, because in some cases you'll have Jesus and Buddha, but in other cases, the ones that got kicked to the side might've been like Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler, something like that, who fell onto the dark side, you know, and came under the wrong influence. So, but they do the best that they can because sometimes their hands are tied with their relationship with the galactic community and what they're allowed to do or not allowed to do. So in terms of intervention, but in many cases, they're stepping in to guide these children along and these children might be things like super psychic kids or indigos, starborns, hybrids, things like that. My story came into it a little bit differently in the background, which I got into in the books as to where my brother and I were coming from. Um, but that initial experience is what kicked it off at the age of 21. And then from there, in that conversation, I was asked, you know, would you use your talents and skills to download this information and educate the masses, pass it on to them. And it was right at that time, I know it was perfectly timed because it was right at that point where I was planning on going back to college for my bachelor's degree in the arts. <clears throat> and I wasn't sure where I was gonna go yet, but I pick up this brochure from um, the State University of New York, Old Westbury, Kansas, uh, Old Westbury campus and there was this one word sentence in there that described it. And I said, that's it. And somehow I just knew that's where I'm going. That's, a, that's where the journey's going to begin. So after that first awakening, here I am in college. And Old Westbury is unique throughout the entire state university system because it, it tends to represent this microcosm of the human race. All these different kinds of people, different walks of life go to that campus, go to that college. So it was a great place to bring this about. And I started taking the downloaded information and those messages and those conversations, which would go for years after that and started putting it into the artwork. And that's how that started, that foundational artwork. And then from there, it turned into the writing. Um, and then along the way in between, it turned into the you know speaking in front of large groups, which was, also ties back into the synchronicity of going to Old Westbury campus because those professors are internationally connected as artists in several different countries. And if you're gonna put something in front of them, you better have a backbone and be able to back it up and explain it to them because then they're gonna stick you in front of all the other students and have you explain it to them in a presentation. So luckily enough, I had a very good mentor, uh, Luis Kamnitzer, um, he's still alive. He's still out there kicking, teaching students. Uh, um, um, he comes from, um, oh, I forgot the name of the country he comes from, but he teaches in Italy, um, sometimes in the United States. And uh, he's the one I went to and I had to explain all this to him. So you can imagine what that was like, trying 
this international well-known artist and I have to present this information to him. And he just looked at me and he says, look, he says, I probably don't believe most of what you're saying, but he says, I will back you up because he says, I can see the political side of this, which was a big interest for him. And he says, I don't want to see any airy-fairy crap enter this curriculum. He says, you make it serious. You make it something that can interact with the viewer when they walk up to your painting or your mixed media piece or whatever you're going to do. And he says, I just don't want to see any of that other crap because that's not what you're here for. I said, I understand. I said, I know exactly the direction I want to go in. And I laid out the whole game plan in front of him. And he gave a seal of approval and said, go for it. And that stayed that way for the years I was there because it came to a certain point as I was advancing further with the artwork. Um, one of the pieces called The Coming has um, very powerful uh, religious implications in it. And one of the professors took issue with it. And he stood up and says, no, he has the right to present this. You can't say that. And yeah, but he's presenting something that's just his belief. And he says, so what? He has the right to present this, okay? You can't shoot it down just because you don't agree with it. So um, so he always had my back, even if he didn't agree with me. And um, that evolved right on through to the senior exhibition, which I actually asked him, I said, you know, I have this whole body of work, plus the new thing I'm going to be doing this last year for the exhibition. I said, can I take over the whole entire gallery and just do it as a sequence of evolution in the artwork and show the whole thing from beginning to end. He said, sure, go for it. He says, nobody else is showing with you, take over the whole gallery. And that was so well received that year that the other professors in the department said, you know, we haven't seen anything this good in 10 years prior. He says, and then that brought down the president and vice president of the college because they got word of it and they wanted to see it themselves. So now, my professor is now walking the president around explaining it to them. <laughs> um, I don't know what he said to them, but it was the first time I ever saw any uh, peaceful communication between my department and the president, because there was usually animosity there and a lot of friction over whether or not to get rid of the art department. So there was a lot of that highly charged situation going on there surrounding my work. And um, I'm glad I was there at the time. And then from there, after college, I, um, I got invited to speak at this group I got involved with from that point forward called Star People in the 90s. Um, and that just went from there with doing interviews and, and talks, um, speaking engagements, and um, in between writing the books. So, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that that's where that started. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's quite a story. I couldn't help but to be surprised um, when you were talking about the crone, because mm -hmm. I saw an image of a praying mantis. Mm -hmm. okay. Right when you started to talk, and I had no idea. I uh, I had never heard of that term before, but you and I were talking a little bit about our books that are in the works and in my next book right. the, uh, that it's coming out, um, my memoir, it talks about my 
next, or I shouldn't say next door, the, the lady who used to live across the street from me, because I'm in the office. I had a dream that she was a seven foot praying mantis. Oh, wow. Okay. That's interesting. And she's yes. always had like a motherly kind of take me under her wing kind okay. of feel to her. Right. Um, she, <laughs> yes. Since passed a few years ago, but um, probably about a year before she passed, because she was in her 90s. She was lived, I mean, here she was in her, you know, up until late 80s, early 90s, still square dancing. And <laughs> she got there in a big purple poofy skirt and waved to me and, you know, I'm getting the mail. Um, but yeah, it's probably about the last year before she passed. Um, I saw her in a dream where she mm-hmm. was a seven foot praying mantis. Mm-hmm. That's so, wild. Maybe, maybe she did have a presence watching over her or something like that. Maybe something that had it might have been there since she was a child. So yeah, it's possible. I mean, she was originally from New York. She'd moved here. Her husband was a judge. Um, but I think after 10 years, I think he had passed and she decided to stay here. Um, but you'd mentioned something about lineage too. Mm-hmm. And you know, things yes. that are I've had a little bit of about that myself my family seems to see reptilian okay my mother and apparently she never and again i am the story keeper in the house like this was never shared with anybody else in my family Mm -hmm. my mother uh told me about when she was a little girl on a streetcar because her my grandfather was a a streetcar operator and she would ride the streetcar occasionally with him, you know, drive, ride, you know, whatever, whatever streetcar people do. Uh, and she noticed the guy sitting next to her who was full long sleeve glove that when the, right. the sleeve separated from the glove, she saw what appeared to be lizard, like lizard oh, skin. Okay. And she had never shared that with anybody but me oh, apparently. And then okay. my sister had um, dreams about these crocodile head reptilians in gold gowns. Right. And working with the government. <laughs> and, okay. Yeah. So again, I shared with, you know, the story about the streetcar. She had never heard of it. And when I went uh-huh. back to my mother to say that, Hey, did Linda ever tell you about the uh, croc kids and the gold outfits working with the U.S. government? She says no. So apparently, all that came to me. Fast okay. forward, and then I moved. I'm originally I'm originally from L.A. The first two years that I lived here, apparently, I had uh, a reptilian encounter. But this guy was like a turtle. Okay. Yeah. Guy. And he, ha- and he started in my dream and I write, and this story is in Mastering the Paradox. It's my third book, but he started, the, the encounter started in the dream. And when I woke up, he was leaning over me. Oh, okay. Okay. So, wow. Yeah. So yeah. So that's three, <laughs> three cuckoos. Most people say cuckoos in the family, but I mean, m- to my surprise, that's, there's a whole, 
you know, yes. society out there that studies this that I never knew about it until, of course, you have the incident or the experience and then you go, what yes. the heck's going on? Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. exactly. That's always how it happens. You know, that's what uh, I started finding out from all the other people I met along the way over the years, too. And some of them, um, I found that uh, one of the other aspects of being a part of this is my mother always raised my brother and I to um, be outspoken about things that need to be talked about, regardless of the repercussions, okay? (laughs) So that could go good, that could go bad, but... um, Having no qualms about talking about this um, back in the 90s, um, I would get feedback from people who were so grateful because it opened up a floodgate for them to realize I'm not nuts. It's okay to talk about this. I'm going to talk about it too. So it instigated a whole line of conversation in other people's lives. Was there an uptick in the 90s? Because... I I seem to have a heightened alertness or seem to hit some trigger point Mm -hmm. that just opened a floodgate that wasn't there before. I think between the stuff that um, was going on with my mom and in my family, the stuff that was going on with Linda and her family, um, and all the other people, the star people group, the people we met along the way, and just there just seemed to be a uh, this spike of not just interest, but also activity exploding right. everywhere. Exactly. Um, it seemed like things maybe have tapered off in the early 2000s, but then it seems like in the last 10 years, things have been ramping up again. Yes. And I, I, it seemed like it did have like a lull in the turn of like the, the 2000 era, but I think the terms like star seed, star children, indigo, that was all created in the nineties. If I remember, I remember like an an uptick in books coming out with that. That was. um, I've often thought about that. What, I mean, obviously there was activity going on somewhere in the world. We probably just didn't hear about it, but just from my own personal one person's perspective going through life, it felt like that timeframe when things kind of dropped low, but, and there was a lull in the activity, like you said, I've had time to think about that. When you hear what many people have brought to the surface with their own experiences, it seems that the conspiracies of the time coming out of the 80s and 90s, um, I, I have no reason to doubt them. But I think that when they were coming to the surface, it was already something taking place and already something on its way out and being pushed out of the way. And I think I think if we were to explain what seems to be that lull from you know 2000 up to maybe, I don't know, 2015, um, 2010, uh, that um, it was because there was a, a big transition going to, taking place on the planet between who was here and who was coming in to correct certain things. 
and shift it, shift the whole paradigm in a different direction. Um, instead of um, instead of being afraid of it, people started realizing, oh, I'm a part of this. That was the first evolution there, coming out of the 90s and then into the 2000s, then began the realization, well, not only am I a part of this, but they have always been here since the beginning of time, and they've been part of my bloodline ever since then. So that caused a this huge shift, I think, in uh, responsibility to the planet as caretakers of the planet. Because then the focus started coming about in, in recent years, you started hearing, um, even though I've always, I've always adhered to terms like benevolent factions and malevolent factions, um, the more general umbrella term that I've seen come about in the last five years is the phrase star nations, which came out of Native America hmm. um, and the star elders. Uh, that gravitated over to the UFO community and people who are having direct experiences, either through telepathy or physical contact with these beings who were making themselves known as being here uh, for the planet and basically trying to get us on board with getting our act together so that we don't destroy it. So that's been the shift away from, oh, I was taken aboard a shift, aboard a ship. Uh, they dissected me. They took my arms and legs off and then put them back on, which has been medically proven as being the case. But you need some really precise instruments to pick up on that. Uh, it's shifted from that, away from that towards, okay, there are these star nations. Many of them are good. Many of them are here because we have a water planet, which is considered um, a gem in the galactic community that is not available everywhere. Um, so our little blue planet is Grand Central Station. And yes, okay, so they've always been here, but the whole Grand Central Station thing may have started off on the wrong foot with the splitting of the atom and the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Sure, that sent out reverberations, though, to the entire community that said, holy crap, who taught them how to do that? They're going to wipe themselves off the map, and then they're going to destroy everything. We've got to get there. So this is what attracted both good and bad. Bad got here first because that was the Eisenhower years. And the good was there, but the good got ignored in favor of the bad because the bad knows how to present things with marketing and advertising in the way that sounds really good to a paranoid Cold War mentality. Mm. You know, we'll make you the superior power. Yeah, but they were saying the same things to the Russians. So it was playing both sides against the middle <laughs> um, for the sake of staying in control. And then this other benevolent element came in and said, um, you guys are violating the prime directive and we're going to expose you if you don't cut the crap. And at that point, it was a case of, well, um, what do we do at this point? Okay, some of us, let's pack our bags and leave. Others have stayed, but they're becoming outnumbered by the benevolent factions who are here now. So, yeah, that malevolent element is still there, but it's uh, become outnumbered. They have a great way to make them, I guess, peer bigger and stronger. And, and mm -hmm. really Oh, yeah. Stronger. I mean, right. uh, it, the smallest group will always scream the loudest. And you see this now. And just 
when you see the bigger picture of how this has played out over the years up to now, you start realizing how the fanaticism of that that has spilled over into human life with our everyday politics, um, that lunatic fringe that has taken over really hasn't. We're just letting it and seeming like it's impossible to stop them because they seem like they're backed by insurmountable forces. But, you know, there's a great phrase from the movie Blade Runner where he says to Rutger Howard, he says, you know, a light bulb burns at its brightest just before it goes out and you are burning very bright. So, <laughs> which means, you know, when you're backing them into a corner, they're going to squeal like a stuck pig ready for the slaughter because they know their time is done. So this is where all of this just utter crazed lunacy is coming about because they're scrambling and their minions on the lower part of media and political parties. They're scrambling and thinking, well, okay, they're leaving us. We're abandoned. What are we going to do to stay in control now? Let's just go crazy because crazy sells. So and, you know, truth be told, Fox News has proven that succinctly. Crazy sells. Um, doesn't have to be true. It never is true. But uh, let's just spew it out there. And unfortunately, the people who fall prey to that are a huge voting block, senior citizens who can't afford expensive cable packages. So they go for the cheap cable package. And who's there all the time? Fox News. <laughs> Well, let's let's talk about that, because, I mean, I know media in general is historically just been distorted um, to to control the narratives, control things to make us believe that maybe it's, you know, this is greater, this is lesser and um, when it isn't. So maybe they take a a little molehill trying to make it a mountain for sensational or take something that should be presented as put this in front of everybody to keep an eye on and they minimize it. So yeah, let's talk about maybe, and also we we're discussing maybe the, the mudding of communications and the breakdown, I mean, the manipulation of communication with maybe an agenda, but also I like to talk about, you know, we in, in your uh, research, you have the discussion of ancient knowledge. Right. And what I'm always curious is whoever does all the research on the ancient knowledge, I mean, is there a purpose or is there, I should say an intentional, maybe misrepresentation, representation. So we know there, you know, it's a cover up that there isn't any aliens involved in ancient civilization. So when you have like bizarre metal balls that can't be explained, you know, it's like, well, that that civilization wasn't supposed to have you know, metal for the next 200 years. And they'll try to, you know, say it's something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, um, the misrepresentation has come in, the foundation of it is 
we are all, most of us, are stuck with the mentality that ancient history was way back then, and we are so much more better off in our modern times. We are superior to that. We know so much more. Yeah. The truth of the matter is they knew the stars and the planets like the back of their hand. And if you ask an eighth grader today how many planets are and can you name them all, they can name barely two or three. Um, there's no comprehension today of the world around us. And it's kept that way because you can't have, you can't stay in control with an intelligent population that realizes a corporation only has one vote. It may have tons of money, but it only has one vote. And there's more of us than there are of them. Um, but so, so in knowing that, what, what happens? Let's put the message out there, uh, a dysfunctional message, misinformation. Let's put all this out there, you know, this, this whole fear factor. And once you set fear in, you can then disconnect people from their legacy and realize they, as in the ancients, are us and we are them. Um, so I, you know, I challenge people, well, you know, why don't you take a look at the fossil record? Why are you finding, finding circuit boards next to Homo habilis? Okay, that doesn't belong there. And no, it's not, you know, you can't just rest your laurels on some simple fantastical answer like time travel. You actually have to come to terms with the cold hard facts that there have been several advanced civilizations that have come and gone because of some kind of horrid disaster that befell them. Um, and um, it, one of the, the best books to read on that is Forgotten Civilization by Dr. Robert Schock. I strongly recommend everyone read that. It'll be a sobering wake up call to just how similar um, that history is to us and how close it is to us at this point in time. Um, and how 10 to 12,000 years is a blip on the map uh, that they were already aware of and they were planning for it. So they intentionally buried the records in the sand so that it would be preserved for time so that we could find it and read it as a guidebook to know what to do today in this 10 to 12,000 year cycle. That seems to be we reach a certain point and then we collapse and we reach a certain point again and then we collapse. Hmm. And it's, I mean, Granted, Mother Nature is not on a time clock, but on average, you can see in the strata of the Earth that there's been this 12,000-year cycle over and over, on average. Um, sometimes 10,000 years, sometimes 20,000 years, but it's in that range. And um, that explains the other reason why we have so much activity now with the benevolent factions because they're coming back to warn us, hey, this is what's going on. We'd like to help you to get past this. Um, we did it with the ancients, but it was in some cases too little too late. And we're here now. Um, we, have, we still have a good amount of time to be here before we have to go back home. Um, you know, if you listen to us, we can help you. But that's where the fear factor comes in and the misinformation to block that. Because in talking to the star nations, you're actually talking to the ancients and therefore reconnecting with your ancient history and learning the truth. Okay. Um, that's a hard pill to swallow when you are 
I'll use myself as an example. When you're a white Anglo-Saxon heterosexual male who for centuries has been brainwashed as being on a false pedestal with privilege and self-entitlement and then brainwashed with the idea that that's equality, that everybody else is just like me. And that's not the case. Um, and this is why we tend, if, if we're going to use my demograph as the controlling factor as to who makes decisions on this planet in the more developed countries above the equator, then this is another reason why we frown and look down on Native American elders who try to share that truth with us because um, we see them as tribal inferior. We see them as drunk alcoholics, domestic abusers who beat their wife and kids without looking at the bigger picture and realizing, well, you did that to them and you were programmed to do that to them so that it broke the connection with your ancient legacy. If you're not going to listen to your elders in Africa or Native America or China or the Middle East, then you're lost. And unfortunately, it's easy to target with misinformation the controlling demographic, which is my face um, and who I am, um, because that aspect, that demographic of the human race has not been around on the planet nearly as long as people of color and hue in any way, shape or form. Um, we're here as uh, what I talk about in the book as a mistake, a mistake that was forced on us on purpose by the powers that be, because at that time, the malevolent factions were in control. And the attitude is, well, let's design this splinter group from the human race that'll be obedient to us and will feel privileged and self-entitled, and they'll do anything we tell them including offer up their children in sacrifice to us. And this is the official beginning of the um, centuries ago, the beginning of the alien abduction phenomena. The whole idea being, you know, this is something that you look at extraterrestrial intervention, that's mainly for people of color and hue, but you look at the alien abduction phenomena, that's not the same thing. And that mostly targets white society. And Sure, you'll find some exceptions, but the exception to the rule only reinforces the argument. So it's kind of hard to point a finger at Betty and Barney Hill and say, well, what about them? And I'll throw it right back and say, yeah, what about them? The exception to the rule. Thank you. And um, so the problem is, is that you have two paradigms that have come to this planet since the beginning of time. And one paradigm says, well, we can save the planet. The other paradigm says, I don't have to do a damn thing because the system will do, you know, I'll be taken care of by the system. Uh, and that's just not the case because the system was set up to brainwash you into being codependent. Now, you combine that misinformation and the politics of fear with the idea of, this, this false sense of equality, which is defined as me um, and in my demographic, and you send that out there to the rest of society in all other demographs, and you're basically sending a false message that says, if you want to be equal, you have to give up everything you know, you have to give up your dark skin, you have to give up your female gender, and you have to be like this white guy. And what happens when that happens? Well, 
when that happens, we end up with people like Michael Jackson. We end up people with O.J. Simpson or um, Kanye West or who's the other guy I'm trying to think of here um, is a fourth one. Um, I can't. Oh, Bill Cosby. Um, you end up with people like that who go after that equality and then they're brainwashed with that privilege and self-entitlement and then they become the criminal. Well, you taught them that that was okay because you said in order to be equal, they had to be like me. Now, I'm not going around raping women or doing all sorts of deranged cosmetic surgery to myself or killing my wife or, you know, doing all sorts of stupid, saying stupid ass things like Kanye West does, but um, that are they're racist and anti-Semitic. Um, but I do know historically what my face represents. It represents the problem not the solution. So the solution is to go to the other side and see what you missed out on. And that's the part that our ancient history, which is really not so ancient, because there's a whole lot of that ancient history that's still here today um, on, on present day earth. We're just not looking for it. We're not seeing it or we're ignoring it. Um, and realize, okay, I've been living in a false reality that was propped up on a pedestal for me and only me and everybody else has been victimized by it because the system was geared for me and around me and because of me. Um, and this has gotten way out of control. Police abuse, out of control, out of control. You can see it all across TikTok and Facebook. Um, and a, a political system that is unhinged based on pure, unadulterated white supremacy and the fear factor of letting anybody else in to have any kind of equity and to balance out the system and say, well, you know, okay, people of color and women, you now have the same opportunities, but you have to be like me. Well, what if I'm not like you? What if I'm transgender? Um, which is a direct representation of extraterrestrial contact. So once again, another aspect of ancient history, if we can't wrap our brains around accepting people who are transgendered and evolving into who they know they're supposed to be, what are you going to do when something walks off a spaceship and is androgynous with purple skin and horns like the devil? Okay, what are you going to do then? There's a great book. Um, I recommend everyone track it down. It's the very first book ever written by Arthur C. Clarke back in the 50s. It's called Childhood's End. It's the only book he ever wrote with that kind of theme. It is a damning book. It is a book that you'll need a good stiff drink after reading it, because I did. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> just the way he wrote it, I was like, holy shit. Okay. Um, <laughs> was that before of, his time? He was before his time then, which sounds yeah, like. It was before wow. he got into the whole aquatic underwater cities and space travel and all that oh, wow. this was very much a socially oriented science fiction story that hit so close to home in modern times with what's going on now with gifted children mm. that it really sits you back on your heels like oh wow i'm missing out on a much bigger picture here because he wrote about it way back when wow and i recommend everybody read it because it talks about where, where we're um, at where we're at and do you think you know, we're on the when you say we're on the 10 to 12,000 cycles yeah. are we in or nearing the end of that I was just curious yes if, if that's, that's what all this is kind of 
that was that's to light um, that we're coming to the end. And also, too, before I forget, talking about the, the cycles, uh, there is some evidence showing that there has been nuclear bombs, you know, yes, in ancient times. I don't know if you're familiar with the Egyptian glass scarab that when yes, they okay. had checked to find what the molecular structure, they found out that the only way that particular type of glass could be made was under a nuclear yes. kind of heat. Right. And they found that type of fused glass in the, um, the deserts of um, North Africa as mm. well. Um, you could, if you look at a map, you can see the, the balloon shaped funnel across what turned into a desert, which would match the, 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 um, the weather taking nuclear fallout and spreading it out. There's a different pattern there in what used to be fertile land and then was forced into being a desert and hasn't recovered since then because I guess the, the, the radiation isotopes haven't lowered enough to allow vegetation to come back and move it away from being a desert region. So, and there's no telling, my, uh, Linda has a very strong feeling that there's no telling what's hiding between or underneath those vast layers of sand that nobody has dug into yet. Wow. So, I mean, you, you see this theme come out in movies like uh, Aquaman with Jason Momoa, where he's walking through the desert and then falls through a hole that you never would have expected to be there. And it turns to be this whole um, uh, catacomb or, or temple that was preserved under the sand. I mean, granted, it's Aquaman, but it gets the message out there. It gets the point across. Um, Do you and, think Hollywood is in contact with um, ETs, uh, extraterrestrial I, entities? Because there is an awful lot yeah. of tidbits of truth <laughs> that mm -hmm. seem to show up in various movies. I think the ones that have a high amount of influence on storytelling, starting with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and heading right on through to James Cameron, uh, Ridley Scott. Um, I do think that they have had people meet with them and have had information handed off to them. Mm. Um, I think it's a powerful testament in that in the end of Close Encounters, Steven Spielberg intentionally gave uh, J. Allen Hynek a cameo at the end when the mothership is landed on the base. He comes out and anyone who knows how ufology got started with, with those scientists from back then, it, as soon as you see his face, you know exactly who he is. Um, it's like picking out Carl Sagan or anybody else like that. You just know who J. Allen Hynek is. You see his face there. And um, that whole scenario in Close Encounters, especially the ending part, um, is very much akin to very a very real story that's been shared um, about an actual exchange program like that. Okay. Mm. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the actual planet that was named. It doesn't come to mind right now. If I, when I find it, I'll send it to you. But there is a very real account that took place that then rolled over into um, Close Encounters. But then again, when you look at all of Close Encounters, you realize Steven Spielberg did a story and made an amalgamation of several different experiences into one. 
Okay. The whole, the whole thing of the cattle's, the cattle uh, looking like they were dead. Uh, that's a tip of the hat to cattle mutilations and stories like that and what's going on with them and the whole uh, fake storyline of, well, you got to get out of town because it's toxic waste toxic here. Waste. You know, yeah. Some release of radiation, we got to get you out of here. And that's just a way to clear out the town. So, um, yeah, there's a lot there. The whole thing with the half his face being red from looking outside the truck as the thing shot down on him and having that undying burden of a vision stuck in him until he finally saw it on TV and realized, oh, it's Devil's Tower. That's what I'm trying to depict. And of course, being so obsessed to the point of destroying the house and creating a lifelike model in the middle of his living room. So, <laughs> so yes. yes. And then finding another artist, the other character in it, who she herself was drawing pictures over and over again of Devil's Tower. Um, the idea that this is an invitation, this is a message to go here. That's all realistic. People have gotten that in real life at other times to go other places to meet up. And it's in many cases, it's um, not even something as long term as that. Sometimes it's just you wake up from a dream and you know you have to go out in the backyard and sure enough, there's something in the sky. You have loss of time. And then the next thing you remember is being back in bed again. But that last image you had of seeing something in the sky was when you were taken. So there's that kind of short-term invitation where you're called out of your sleep. So, um, and I suppose it just has to do with what alien race has, what kind of technology. Others can walk right through the walls and take you. So, you know. Um, I yeah. have my theory about Rio Rancho because... <laughs> um, I belonged to a church at one time and all the people that were in that church were from all over the, all over the country. They oh. all found their way to Rio Rancho. Wow. Okay. And That's then they were all, they were all called to this church, even though they had never been to church like me. Huh. And uh, uh, it turned yeah. out to be a fiasco after that. And some people uh, <laughs> took off and went back. But like, it was weird that people in that church, when you start talking, they're from Ohio, California, Arizona, Texas, Florida. Um, right. You know, even people, I think there was one person who was from Germany. Um, but I thought that was a weird coincidence because, you know, there is there are mm -hmm. no coincidences, right? <laughs> I think New Mexico is a is a powerful state, Energy. a powerful central yeah. point yes. for all of this kind of experience and activity. I mean, yes, I mean, they, I think the only other one that would I could point out would be Freeport, New York. But Linda could tell you about that between her and her mother and the experiences there. So, oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let me ask you this. We, we've kind of talked about a lot of things but i want to bring us back to the ancient astronaut what oh, do you okay. think sure. how did they end up here was it a watering hole i mean are is this a terrain a terrarium of species all being observed how, how did this all start with the what do, let's go back to our ancient astronaut and you know what do you think what do you think is the focal point of ancient man and populating the planet Right. <laughs> right. Um, there's been many different species that have come here. And I, I think it's a 
it's a stopping point. We are on the outer rim of our galaxy. So it's we're kind of on the, as the galaxy's turning around, we, we have that back end whiplash, like we're on a roller coaster here, depending on what side of the central universe we're on. And I think there's a, a different vibe in terms of who visits here. Um, every, every, once again, here's that time frame. every 12,500 years, um, or I should correct myself, uh, 13,000, uh, 13,000 years, because then you have that, um, that 26,000 year cycle when everything completes and comes back to where it was with the galaxy in a cycle around the center part of the universe. Um, and I do think that influences the attitude of who comes here. And when you consider how many civilizations we've gone through on this planet with continent, the continent coming together and then splitting apart again from Pangea out to separate continents and then coming back together, um, that there is quite a mega amount of information and vast history that we have yet to discover. In some cases, I don't think we ever will because I think a lot of it's been lost. But some of it has been preserved. And when you see that they're finding signs of civilizations going back um, as far as 2 million years, um, and finding it in places they never thought possible or expected would be like the West Coast of the United States. Well, what are they doing there? That wasn't where things started. Yeah, but you said the starting point was about 5,000 years ago in the Middle East. So naturally, you're going to find things all over the planet once you start expanding your scope and stop labeling with misinformation the idea that the Greeks began, began everything for Europe and then it all came from there. That's not how it works. And that's a completely false mythology and cosmology there. Um, so yes, there have been many different species coming here, some over and over again. It depends on when they can get here to, I mean, even though they have a technology to cut down on the distance, the reality is regardless of the technology, they still have a vast distance to cover. So if you're coming, from a certain star system to get here. And if it's uh, 100,000 light years away, but your technology can cut it down to uh, five to 10,000 years, okay, fine, that's a big difference, but it's still five to 10,000 years before you can get here, okay? And then if you're gonna come here, you are gonna come with a, a massive storehouse of information from your civilization. So that guarantees a mothership with several subordinate ships coming off of that. So you see these stories coming out of the Vedic literature of India. You see it coming out of the Mayan literature of Mexico or the Mayan symbolism, okay? They talk about Star Wars. And because obviously what was here already and what came here, they didn't agree with each other, they didn't get along. And so these battles ensued. Um, Whoever came out on the winning side, I'm not sure, because that's where you have your original atomic warfare taking place. They actually have symbols um, from the Mayans showing uh, missile warfare. Uh, George Haas is a great researcher of the Mesoamerican symbology and how it relates to Mars. And that's pretty powerful evidence he's come up with there that is just undeniable. Um, he shows this, uh, this drawing from the Mayans about the star wars that they talk about in the mythology and the missiles. And I said, you know, that 
could very well be a reference to the same nuclear warfare that um, they talk about in the Vedic literature with the Indians in India. Um, when you take a look at how we have been misled with the idea that um, that thousand year period, um, which is always referred to as the medieval ages or the dark ages, the, day, the ages of the black plague or the bubonic plague. And well, that was Europe. That's not the rest of the world. Because in that same thousand year period, you had this advanced civilization known as Mesopotamia, which everybody ignores. And they actually have drawings from that time of a man with a rocket pack on his back flying through the air. I think I've seen that. <laughs> yes. Okay. They're the ones that invented how to make a battery out of orange juice. Okay. Yes. So, I've, I've seen that information too. And there's a, I, I forget which museum it's in, but there is a life science model of this ancient battery. And when you look at it, yeah, it looks like it came right off of a spaceship. So it's pretty wild. I mean, it, it ties right in with what Nikola Tesla was trying to teach us at the time, but nobody would pay attention because once again, that corporate misinformation got in the way. Yeah. Um, you can't make a profit off of free energy. Yeah, free energy, so, exactly. Yeah. And uh, even though you still have to pay a utility bill for someone to maintenance the tower, the point is, you know, it's not a $200 bill because you use too much heat or too much electric. So um, the, if you, you know, it, so in terms of tying ourselves back to these ancient races that have been here and gave birth to our um, ancient civilizations and we're of which we only know one handful of, whether it's Easter Island or Egypt or India or Turkey with Gobekli Tepe, which blew everyone out of the water because that went back well beyond. And then once they realized how far they were dating that back beyond Egypt, then they had to go back and look at the Sphinx in Egypt and realize that Dr. Robert Schock was telling the truth all along, um, that the Sphinx does not belong to Egypt. It belonged to something that came before Egypt and Egypt adopted it. So, and then built their entire civilization around that. Now that's not to say that there isn't a longer history for Egypt either, but the academics won't let us know that. So I think, you know, when you look at um, the relationship between um, uh, Mesopotamia, which is Uruk, which became Iraq by mispronunciation. Um, and that whole civilization that came down much earlier, Sumeria, okay, like, you know, another word for it, Sumeria, which came down and started influencing Egypt, okay? And um, you can see a lot of that coming through the, um, once again, if we're going to talk about callings from the paranormal, I think that's what drove Abraham to come down from Uruk and go into Egypt mm -hmm. and bring that knowledge there. Um, so there's uh, John, Graham Hancock, who I, I agree with this statement. He says, uh, the evidence is quite clear that there's no way that all of these civilizations could have had the same knowledge at the same time unless there was one ancient unifying civilization that handed it down to them. And that's when I start getting into talking about the Moorish legacy in my books, because I put it to that. And some people will challenge me and say, well, you only see 
more is coming about at a certain time frame when they came up to Europe um, for about 800 years and gave civilization back to Europe to pull them kicking and screaming out of the Dark Ages. Hmm. Uh, and that would be the link between Mesopotamia and North Africa and then bringing all that knowledge from um, uh, the Egyptian Kemetian mysteries up to Europe to teach them how to read again and to basically stop throwing their feces in the street, okay? Um, and this is how Europe crawled out of the gutter by uh, having knowledge and wisdom from people that they refuse to recognize as having knowledge and wisdom. Um, so it's in, this is coming from those ancient races that handed it down every cycle that earth went through every 12,000 years, they were always there to help us pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and get back on track. And they would teach us, look, there's energy and power in the geosophy of stone. Put it in the stone, because that's the one thing that stands a chance of standing up to a plasma storm or a coronal mass ejection from the, uh, storm, from the sun. If you want something to survive, you have to put it in stone. Metal's not going to survive. That'll rust and fall apart. Paper, well, that's a no-brainer. Um, you know, what's going to stand up to fire and water? To this day, the only thing left is stone. And even though stone can be vitrified by extreme heat, they will still, even after that, be something left, even after it's melted. So this is why they started imprinting their vocals, the energy of sound, into stone. And nowadays, science has now gotten into that on their border, fringe science, border sciences. They're finally admitting, yeah, there's something to be said the way sound affects material and can levitate it and move it around. Yes, but it can also interact with releasing information from the cell structure of stone. So if you're using stone as a CD drive or a junk drive and you're recording information in it for time immemorial, you can, if you're smart enough, and I guess this is a test of whether or not we're smart or dumb enough to figure it out or kill ourselves, but if we are evolved enough to say, hey, uh, we've developed this technology, we can pull this knowledge out of the stone now, then we're at a point where we stand a chance of saving ourselves because it's not just the hieroglyphs or the cuneiform or the writing from uh, Rongo Rongo from Easter Island that's on the surface. It's also what's lying beneath the surface of the stone. What do those hieroglyphs represent? If you point a certain sound at it, what are you going to get from that? This was proven by someone who um, decades ago ended up, uh, through his own research, ended up shaping a wire hanger into a certain shape like an antenna walked into the middle of Stonehenge and ended up zapping himself and knocking himself out for hours oh, because wow. it interacted with the stone, you know? Wow. So um, there's a lot of power in uh, reasoning and logic in locking inside stone. Now, you go back in time and start really scrutinizing what was embedded in the stone structures themselves. You start seeing, oh, people were using laptops. They were using iPads. They had sophisticated technology, but you know the academics will play it off. Oh, that's an act of uh, abacus. That's not an abacus. I, I know what a tablet or a laptop looks like. I'm not a moron. So you know, um, but well, 
Yeah, I remember one time there was a report, I don't know if the, how accurate it was, but in an ancient tomb in a carsophagus, there was a digital ring watch on a mummy that was all corroded. Right. Uh, it doesn't surprise me if so, that was yeah, passed lots, on to them. <laughs> lots and lots of stuff out there that can't be explained by the, the normal narrative. And, and not, not only that, but the scientific community, there's, there's a battle going on in the scientific community. There's a battle going on in every community right now because yeah. we're fighting between fiction and truth. Um, but um, in the scientific community, you have those scientists, that younger generation of scientists who are now battling to bring that information out because they're studying these fringe sciences and realizing... Right. Yeah, what's I'm not studying anything new. This is from the ancients. They were already talking about it, and I'm just rediscovering it. So, um, but the older um, vanguard of scientists, the general mentality is to just take a vow of silence. We're not going to talk about it. We're just yeah. going to pretend it's not there. But if you pull that, one of those, does that come you, down to funding? Yeah, they're worried about a lot of funding, it, right? Once again, it's the corporations yeah. mm -hmm. who have vast amounts of resources to do their own research and realize uh, if we release this to the public, we're screwed. Mm -hmm. So what do they do? They start buying up all these scientific patents, locking them away in a vault until they can figure out how they can market it for a profit. So um, there's lots of blueprints um, that have been bought up by these scientists you will never hear about who tripped across ancient knowledge as modern science. And then as soon as somebody found out about it, oh, we're gonna take that and put it away. We don't want that released yet because that's gonna knock the whole market on its head if you release that. So hydrogen powered car, you know, it's only now that it's become chic to have a hybrid car that's part gas, part electric or an all electric car. How many years, how many decades did we have to push for that though until they figured out how to make a profit off of it by limiting the battery to only a certain amount of time? And then you had to go back and charge it up again. Okay. Okay, fine. But you know, it's just the amount of technology that is waiting as a floodgate to be released to solve a whole lot of problems on this planet. That's the other aspect of these why these star nations are here, because they know. They're looking at us, you know, like, you idiots, we gave it to you 12,000 years ago. Why aren't you using it? Well, because this other element is still here that doesn't want us to use it. So why don't you do something about them? Well, that's the prime directive. You have to do it yourself. Okay, that's understandable. Because people will argue, well, if they have all these capabilities, why don't they just come down here and do it for us? Well, then your existence becomes null and void. If they're going to come down here and wipe your ass then what's the point to your existence? You didn't do it yourself. You're not going to appreciate it. Okay. It's like a spoiled brat who, whose dad had to work, kick and scream for everything he earned. But then the, the son or daughter grows up in that rich, wealthy environment. They didn't have to work for a damn thing. So they become a bunch of misanthropes and sociopaths because they're bored. They didn't have to work for anything. They can't relate to the common man or common woman. So they become a detriment to society. They become greedy. They become selfish because they were raised in an atmosphere that is amoral. 
and nothing bad about money, but you know, if you're going to spoil the hell out of them and do everything for them, instead of making them learn how to rub two brain cells together to produce an original thought and have an ambition to achieve a goal, then you've destroyed that child. And that's what we are. We're a bunch of children on this planet who haven't learned how to be caretakers of the planet. So a higher power coming down to do it for us would be the ultimate sin. Mm. Well, so the moral to the story is uh, do your part, learn your lessons and stop being spoiled, right? Right. (laughs) And, you know, learn what true equality is. You can't go cherry picking what you want or get bent out of shape because the system is now growing with equity and learning to equalize and balance things out. And you're not at the top of the totem pole anymore. Right. Well, there's the ancient, probably the ancient uh, astronaut definitely knew it's all about balance. You can't be off kilter or else things go wrong. Um, Yeah, because they had advanced technology, too. Yeah. You know, I can't say it was the the same as the way we've gone in in, in the, uh, since the 1980s, but it was very similar. I mean, they were more into just pulling it out of the atmosphere. Yeah. Whereas today, we're still stuck on. Well, I got to plug this into the wall because I have to pay the electric bill. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad that things are changing and. You know, as we come to the end of our cycle, as well as our interview, yes. here, <laughs> you know, times are changing. So be ready yes. for them. Well, this has been a very interesting interview. It's been wonderful to have you on. So one last question. Sure, Where can our listeners find more about you and your books. Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. Thank you. Um, the general easy answer is to just plug the phrase UFO teacher into any search engine and you'll see uh, Linda and I are plastered all over the place. However, the specific real answer is this. Our official website is ufoteacher.com, all one word. Okay. And once you go there, that's our website. You'll see the book link at the top. Click on it. All of our books are there with links to wherever they're sold. Okay. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Author House, wherever it might be. Um, And uh, our contact, if um, anyone wants to reach out to me, um, we also have our biographies on there. So if you go to the about menu, uh, ufoteacher.com, you'll see about Linda, about Richard. Click on either one and you'll see information on how to reach out to us. Perfect. I'm on social media. You can find me anywhere on social media. So great. Great. Well, check him out. And I do want to thank you for sharing those amazing insights and knowledge uh, today. And I also want to thank our listeners for tuning into the Leap Into Your Story podcast, where you discover your inner story, work through the process, and meet others who've done it so you can be guided into your journey to writing your story. Remember to visit us at leapintoyourstory.com and enjoy even more great episodes like this one. Again, while you're there, subscribe and like us via your favorite social media network. We are looking forward to 
seeing you next time here on the Leap Into Your Story podcast. Thank you for tuning into the Leap Into Your Story podcast, where you discover your inner story, break down the process, and meet others who've done it so you can leap into your own story. Remember to visit our website at leapintoyourstory.com and enjoy even more great episodes like this one. Again, while you're there, subscribe and like to us via your favorite social media network. We're looking forward to seeing you next time on the Leap Into Your Story podcast.